Okay, let's, uh, let's get started. Thank you all for being here. Uh, my name is Kim Ford Masrui. I'm the director of the Center for the Study of Race and Law. And uh, we're pleased to have you for this discussion on the affirmative action cases and their potential implications. We thought given their recent oral arguments and their news coverage lately, it would be uh, useful for the law school to hold an event uh, with legal experts to discuss legal aspects of the cases. Uh, I'm going to hand it off to my uh, amazing, uh, well, she's not directly my student, but all of our students are my students, uh, who, will, uh, who will then uh, take it over from here. So um, this is Bertie Asifa, class of 24, and she is the education chair of the Black Law Students Association, one of the sponsors of this event. She's also an editorial board member of the Virginia Law Review. Uh, and she's also an editor with the Journal of, or the Virginia Journal of International Law and a Jack Kent Cooke graduate uh, scholar. And this past summer, she was a judicial intern for the Honorable uh, Judge Amit Mehta on the United States District Court for the District of Columbia. Thank you, Bertie. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Hi, everybody. I'm Bertie Asefa. Um, as as you guys know, I'm a 2L. I'm the education chair for uh, the Black Law Student Association. Um, and I want to thank you all for coming and for showing out. And I want to thank the panelists in advance for sharing their time um, and their thoughts with us. Um, and first, I would also like to thank the co-sponsors for, for this event, the Black Law Student Association, the Latin American Law Organization, and Women of Color for co-sponsoring the event. Um, so first, I'll make some housekeeping notes. And then I will do a quick remark about the motivations behind this panel, and then I'll introduce the panelists before kind of handing over the conversation to them. Um, so before I wanted to begin, I wanted to let everybody know that this event is being recorded, including the Q&A. Uh, the format of this panel will move in two parts. Um, the first part will explore the history and existing law on affirmative action and catered through 12 education. Uh, during this portion, portion, each panelist will have five minutes to speak um, on their respective topics. Then we will move on to the second portion, which will be in a Q&A format, um, and it will explore the potential implications of the court's eventual, eventual rulings on these recent affirmative action cases. Um, so during this time, I will start off by posing a general question to the, to the panelists, and then from there, they'll be taking questions from the audience. So I hope you came prepared with questions. Um, so before I introduce the panelists, I wanted to briefly remark on why I think having an open discussion about these cases is important. As I'm sure many of you have noted, some of the most canonical Supreme Court cases of the 20th and 21st century have had to do with education. More recently, the modern conception of affirmative action in education is one that's captured the American imagination for over half a century. And to me, that reveals two things. One, race is as animating of a subject within the law as it always was, particularly within education law. And two, the question of who does and does not have access to education remains a loaded subject in American society. That's because education means opportunity. It means opportunity for economic mobility, but also means opportunity to live as informed and critical members of our community and this nation as a whole. While there are differing understandings of how race, uh, education, and the law should interact, one thing I hope, one thing I hope we can all agree on is that even though the outcomes of these affirmative action cases, whatever they may be, would disproportionately affect students of color, particularly black, brown, and indigenous students, 
that doesn't mean affirmative action is not a greater national issue. As a, as a matter of fact, not only is access to quality education a right everyone deserves, but also American democracy, particularly right now, can't afford to leave any mind without a quality education of one form or another. So having said that, it's my honor to introduce the panelists. Um, professor Kimberly Robinson is a professor at the School of Law, as well as a professor at both the School of Education and Human Development and the Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy. She's one of the nation's leading education law experts and speaks throughout the United States about K through 12 educational equity, school funding, education and democracy, equal opportunity, civil rights, among, among other issues. Before Robinson began her career as a professor, she practiced law in the general counsel's office of the US Department of Education and as an education litigation attorney with Hogan, Hogan Lovells in Washington, DC. She also served as a clerk for the Ninth Circuit in San Francisco. Robinson graduated with her JD from Harvard Law School and her BA from the University of Virginia. Uh, professor George Rutherglin is the Earl K. Shaw Professor of Employment Law here at the Law School. His areas of expertise include civil procedure and employment discrimination. Prior to becoming a professor, Professor, professor Rutherglin clerked on the Ninth Circuit in San Diego, as well as for on the Supreme Court for Justices William O. Douglas and John Paul Stevens. He received both his undergraduate and law degree at the University of Berkeley, where he served as articles editor of the California Law Review. Professor Scott Ballinger is the director of the Appellate Litigation Clinic here, here at UVA Law. In the past, he clerked on the Ninth Circuit and then on the Supreme Court for Justice Antonin Scalia. He also served as senior counsel to the Assistant Attorney General in the Antitrust Division of the Department of Justice. Prior to taking over the Appellate Litigation Clinic, Professor Ballinger was a partner in the appellate practice at Latham & Watkins, where he worked on the legal team defending the University of Michigan and Grutter v. Bollinger and the University of Texas in both Fisher I and Fisher II. Professor Ballinger received both his undergraduate and law, law school degrees from the University of Virginia. And last but certainly not least, Professor Kim Ford Masrui is the Mortmere M. Kaplan Professor of Law and the Director of the Center for Study of Race and Law here at the law school. Professor Ford Masrui is a scholar of constitutional law, employment discrimination, criminal law, and race and the law. After law school, Professor Ford Masrui clerked on the Sixth Cir Circuit before joining Sidley and Austin in Washington, D.C. He received his undergraduate and law degree both from the University of Michigan. So with that said, Professor Robinson, why don't you start us off? Great. So thanks for that introduction, Bertie. I'm really excited to see so many of you here and to discuss these issues. Um, so I wanted to start off with uh, a bit of data about sort of public opinion about these issues. So um, recent polls show, if you look at um, Pew Research, 73% of Americans actually oppose considering race, or ethnicity, and emissions. Um, and are the, <laughs> there are disparities. Um, majorities of Hispanic, Black, and Asians, as well as Republicans and Democrats, indicate that they oppose this. Majorities instead favor relying upon high school grades and standardized test scores. They also, in general, oppose considerations of legacy, athletic ability, first-generation status, or gender and admissions, admissions processes. So what's behind this data? Why does this matter? It matters because other data shows that people actually think um, that students get an equal opportunity in America's public schools. So 
When asked, do you feel that students of color are afforded the same education opportunities as their peers, 81% of whites say yes, 43% of African Americans say yes, and 72% of Hispanics say yes. Um, they did not give the data on the Asian, Asian American response. But I share that data because it's counterfactual. The landscape of educational opportunities in the United States are vastly unequal. And if we go to a system that relies solely on the education that students receive in public schools, then we will bake into college, we will continue to bake into college admissions the inequality that we tolerate at the K-12 level. So let me give you a bit of an anatomy of the opportunity gap, and I'm just going to highlight some um, additional data. If you're ever in any of my classes, and I hope, given all of this interest in education, that I see all of you in the spring in my education law classes. I teach two of them. One, race, education, opportunity. This is my brief commercial. Two, uh, education law survey. Um, and I also teach a class on Title IX. So I hope all of you are interested after this panel in learning more about these issues. We do discuss them in my classes. Okay, back to the data. So, the data shows, uh, the data about our public schools shows that they are deeply unequal. Let me give you one number. If you only remember one number, I tell you, I'm often throwing data at my students because I love a good research finding. Here's a number, 23 billion, $23 billion. What is that? That is the gap that Ed Build found in the disparity between schools that are 75% white or more and 75% minority or more. $23 B billion dollar gap. Why does that matter? It matters because the data shows that schools where children of color are in the majority, or particularly when they're in um, what they call hyper-segregation, where they're 90 to 100 percent, those schools are found to be generally under-resourced, staffed with less experienced teachers, poor facilities, and don't have the rich curriculum and other opportunities that would prepare them well to succeed in college admissions. Other data. If you look at school segregation, unfortunately, I know we all learned in civic class that Brown versus Board of Education outlaws segregated schools. Unfortunately, however, we never fully desegregated the schools. The courts paused that effort and then segregation began to roll back. So while we eventually had significant desegregation, particularly in the South, which was the place in the country that was most um, under court order, you have now growing racial isolation in schools such that children often are not educated with those who do not look like them, too often. Um, so I'll give you some data about that. About 34% of black students attend schools that are 90 to 100% black and Latino, right? So this is a school where they're really not seeing anyone um, that different from themselves other than the significant black Latino interaction. In addition, data shows that more minority students are also more likely to have inexperienced teachers and they're um, for example, black students are four times more likely to be suspended or expelled from school. So what you see is that we have vastly unequal schools and then some of these students go on to apply to college. And so you can see why the consideration of that is a relevant factor for looking at the educational um, experiences that students have had and how they look at admissions. 
So I'll just take like 30 seconds and explain the case law about this at the K-12 level. So one of the reasons that we have trouble addressing this opportunity gap is because the Supreme Court, in a case called Parents Involved, struck down two admissions policies for public schools that sought to look at race, that sought to bring students together of different races. And instead, the court said, no, the use of race here was not necessary in the Louisville and Seattle public school districts. And it was not, um, it was not uh, you had not sufficiently exhausted race-neutral alternatives. And so the signal that that sent to school districts is, we can't even try to break up this racial isolation that we have in our schools um, by looking at things such as race to, to create integrated schools. And so the challenge is we have growing racial segregation that also feeds this opportunity gap. And so that is the K-12 landscape uh, for how we then apply to higher education admissions. So I'm gonna talk about how we got to the oral arguments in the uh, pending affirmative action cases. Uh, I'm gonna start with Regents of the University of California against Baki, and then I'm going to turn over the discussion to Professor Scott Ballinger, who worked on the subsequent litigation in the Supreme Court. Now, many of you perhaps have not taken constitutional law, so let me just give you a little lecture on the general background, which is that if you have a government classification or decision that explicitly considers race, it must be justified as narrowly tailored to serve a compelling government interest. One compelling government interest is remedying past discrimination. So the federal courts fairly routinely, after Brown against Board of Education, ordered race-conscious measures in order to desegregate the schools. As Professor Robinson has just said, the Supreme Court phased out those efforts before they were truly successful. Now, if we turn to uh, Baki, what we find is a badly divided Supreme Court. Uh, Justice Brennan, with three other justices, wrote an opinion, which in my view takes the correct approach to affirmative action. That is, very lenient scrutiny of government programs in which the majority discriminates against itself. The majority always has the power to eliminate those programs. Justice Brennan concluded that the uh, University of California could consider race as part of its broad power to remedy discrimination. Um, I, I believe that this is the uh, correct approach, um, but it's, as Professor Robinson just said, wildly unpopular politically. Um, in addition to these surveys that she's mentioned, uh, nine states have barred the use of race in uh, admission to higher education. Uh, some of these states are remarkably liberal, such as California and Washington. Um, and in every referendum that has put affirmative action on the ballot, affirmative action has lost. So although I think the best constitutional approach is the one adopted by Justice Brennan. I acknowledge that it has 
hardly any constituency in the political sphere. The alternative, which was put forward by Justice Stevens on behalf of four justices, did not look at the Constitution. Instead, it looked at Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. That statute prohibits consideration of race by institutions that receive federal funds. Almost all institutions of higher education receive federal funds. Um, that approach, which I also think has a lot of doctrinal simplicity, is simply an approach of colorblindness. Now, to be sure, it's a statutory approach. So we have four justices in Baki taking a broad approach under the Constitution. We have four justices in Baki taking a strict approach under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Justice Powell, speaking only for himself, split the difference between these opposed views. And what he said, which was almost unprecedented at the time, is that the uh, University of California could consider race to serve the compelling interest in educational diversity so long as it did so flexibly as, and as part of a holistic review. Um, I think there is almost nothing that can be said doctrinally in defense of Justice Powell's view. <laughs> but as a matter of pragmatism and compromise, it was a stroke of genius. So that's where the law stands today. The, the doctrinal approaches that can be easily defended really either allow affirmative action in almost all circumstances or not at all. The approach that we followed for 45 years since Baki tries to strike some pragmatic balance between them. And the question is, will that pragmatic balance survive? What do you think, Scott? <laughs> Let's table that for a second. I, um, so I, I banished myself over here because I have a late-breaking sore throat, and I, I don't want to get them sick um, if I am. But I, I was going to talk a little bit about the Grutter and Fisher cases that, uh, that I worked on in private practice. These were, um, in the early 2000s, parallel challenges to the admissions programs at the University of Michigan undergrad and law school. Um, two cases that went uh, you know, on at the same time. There was, uh, the undergrad school had essentially a point system that had sort of explicit points for racial categories. The law school used something you know, holistic that the lower courts made a finding was indistinguishable from what Justice Powell had described in the Baki case that Harvard was doing. And there was an extensive trial uh, about the educational benefits of diversity at which the, the district court made a whole bunch of findings that really I think have never been meaningfully challenged um, about the importance of, uh, of racial diversity in the classroom and on campus to a, a wide variety of educational goals. And you know, I think it, it's easy for the opponents of affirmative action to sort of lampoon the importance of diversity to the teaching of math or chemistry or whatnot. This is what you, you always hear. But the, the trial record in the Bruder and Gratz cases actually uh, contained a lot of evidence that it, it makes a big difference to the, the teaching of even core science and math kinds of subjects um, that people not feel isolated um, and uncomfortable in the classroom. And in any event, you know, half of, of the cases were the University of Michigan Law School. And it's not a bit difficult to understand how uh, racial diversity might be relevant to the teaching of, say, employment discrimination or criminal justice. 
um, at the law school setting. But even beyond all of that, it's important to understand that the, the educational benefits of diversity that were articulated in those cases and ever since have never really been limited to the classroom, right? Um, John Payton, who, who at Wilmer Cutler, who represented the undergrad school, um, used to tell this great uh, story about uh, George Washington's farewell address. So, you know, the one that everybody's familiar with about entangling alliances and all of that um, was actually, uh, I think, Hamilton's draft that he, he talked Washington into giving. The speech that George Washington actually wanted to give was calling for a national university in Washington, D.C. Because it was his belief that it was really the Continental Army that had created America. And he sort of felt that the country already starting to fall apart. And, and he thought, look, the, the only way we're going to be able to fuse a, uh, a nation out of these different colonies is if we bring young people from all over the country together um, and have them live together for, uh, for a while and you know, transcend uh, differences of, of class and geography um, and everything else. Um, it's an enormous piece of what the University of Michigan you know, was trying to do with its admissions policy is to try and bring people together um, from different places and different cultures and get them talking to each other. And another big piece of it always has been um, that the University of Michigan articulated its, its goal as the training of leaders for a diverse society, right? And it's just not possible to, to train leaders for a diverse society in isolation from the diversity of the society that they are hoping to lead. And it's also not possible to put forward a, a roster of people as you know, the next generation of federal judges and prosecutors and, um, and legislators uh, who don't look you know, a thing like America itself. People don't talk about that as part of the educational benefits of diversity as much as they should, but it's right there in, in the Gruder uh, opinion, um, and you have to take it seriously. So the, the holding of, of the two cases was that the undergrad school lost and the law school won, right? And the, the undergrad school um, system in which there was sort of an explicit points uh, system was held to be unconstitutional, but the court reaffirmed what Justice Powell had said in Bakke, that if what you're doing is sort of more holistic consideration of race as one factor among many in a genuine search for sort of broad-based diversity, not just racial diversity, but racial diversity, I mean the diversity writ large, um, then you can do it. And as long as, as race doesn't become the defining feature of the process. You can't use quotas, the courts uh, said in Gruder, but you can pay some attention to the numbers because the educational benefits of diversity don't exist in isolation from the numbers, right? It, it is you know, the reduction of isolation and increasing opportunities for cross-cultural contact that constitute the, the benefits of diversity on a college campus, and those have, you know, at least to some extent, a lot to do with uh, the numbers. Universities have to seriously consider race-neutral alternatives, but they don't have to change their mission or accept substantial dilution of academic objectives. Justice Scalia made a big deal in the argument um, in the Gruder case uh, about um, an accusation that, you know, Michigan, you don't really care about, uh, about racial diversity. What you really care about is being a super-duper law school and maintaining your US uh, news ranking. And, and the court said very clearly, look, Michigan is, is allowed to pursue both. It, it, they're allowed to care about academics um, and diversity at the same time. Um, 
you know, as for, for the other race-neutral alternatives that were proposed, it, it was clear on the record of those cases that there wasn't anything more that Michigan could be doing by way of recruiting or outreach that would do any good. They were already doing as much uh, as was reasonably possible. Um, and it was also clear that there was no amount of consideration of socioeconomic factors um, by itself that would, that would produce racial diversity. The, the problem essentially is that there are so many more poor white students in the relevant score ranges that there's no um, amount of socioeconomic affirmative action that would actually get you there. Um, Justice O'Connor's opinion for the court, though, put a time limit on it and said, we expect that in 25 years this won't be necessary anymore. So it, it doesn't have you know, necessarily a built-in self-destruct switch, but the opinion has something pretty close to that. Um, the, the Fisher cases I, I'll just mention briefly. Uh, so the University of Texas, before Grutter, had been forced by the Fifth Circuit to abandon affirmative action in admissions. And as, as reaction, the Texas legislature forced the University of Texas to take the top 10% of every high school in, in Texas. This was, a, you know, to my way of thinking, a kind of a cynical ploy to capitalize on the segregation of Texas high schools to ensure that the University of Texas at Austin uh, didn't resegregate. Um, but it worked to a substantial extent. Um, that grew to, to consume about 75% of the University of Texas's class, um, but they, they still had 25% that they could admit uh, holistically. After Grutter, UT wanted to go back to considering race for in, within that 25%, right? And it, it was challenged, and the challenge was basically, uh, the game's not worth the candle. You're only, you're only uh, having race affect 1% you know, of your admissions decisions within this um, little thing. You're not doing enough affirmative action for it to be worth it, so it should be illegal. Um, sort of ironic, right? Um, and the case went to the Supreme Court uh, twice. We sort of lost the first time and, and were decisively won the second time. The, the court ultimately said, no, that, that's not right. I mean, actually, the modesty of Texas's affirmative action program is a mark in its favor, not a reason to, to, to declare it unconstitutional. But, but critically, the, the court also said that we're not sure this, this Texas 10% plan is so great, right? And one of the arguments that the, the plaintiffs had made was that, look, Texas can, can achieve whatever it wants to achieve just by expanding the top 10% plan. Rather than having it fill 75% of the class, have it fill 100% of the class. You'll get reasonable racial diversity that way. And, and the court basically said, look, the only reason that policy was adopted was to engineer a particular racial result. And it really doesn't have anything going for it educationally other than the racial result that it engineers. And so it's not really clear to us that this is a race-neutral alternative at all. Um, and that's where we stand going into the current Harvard and North Carolina cases. Oops. Sorry, I was going to time this over. All right, thank you. Uh, yeah, so I just wanted to conclude this uh, section with telling you what's going on in the current two cases. Uh, the two cases are called Students for Fair Admissions, or SFFA, against the University of North Carolina, and also SFFA against um, Harvard University. Uh, both lawsuits were filed, uh, you know, five to seven years ago or so, and uh, they both make two similar arguments, uh, and then I'll describe, you know, the differences in a moment. 
the two arguments are essentially um, one, both schools are violating existing doctrine, so the doctrine that uh, our panelists have just described. So you know, even holding uh, you know Bakke, Gruder, and Fisher as good law, they're not compliant with that. Uh, and then the second arguments they make is, even if they are compliant, they still should lose because the Supreme Court should overturn those doctrines and forbid all uses of race. So um, in the UNC case, it's a little bit simpler on the first argument. Uh, the argument that they're violating Grutter, which is sort of the kind of main case for the modern doctrine. Uh, their main claim is that there are race-neutral alternatives that could use. So uh, as has been said, it's not considered narrowly tailored if there are race-neutral, workable race-neutral alternatives uh, that you know, wouldn't compromise the academic excellence uh, and, and the like. And they basically said, you know, you could, uh, the most, there's a lot of detailed kind of things, increasing financial aid, recruiting at uh, lower-income high schools. I think the, the most prominent one is, is a claim that you could uh, get the highest achieving um, high school students, uh, especially low-income high school students in the state, and the assumption would be that they would all come to UNC. Uh, and uh, so they said, therefore, you're, uh, you're violating Grutter because there are race-neutral alternatives you could use. And then the second argument is just a full-out assault on the use of race. They rely on Brown versus Board of Education for the proposition that uh, race cannot be a factor in, um, in sorting school uh, uh, children or adults by implication. Uh, and that's, I think, what their ultimate ultimate goal is, and, and, uh, uh, and then in the, in the Harvard case, again, they also make those two types of arguments. On the case that, the argument that says you're violating Grutter, in the Harvard case, um, they, uh, in first case you're wondering, Harvard's private, so why are they subject to the Constitution? As, uh, as Professor Rutherland pointed out, it's Title VI that uh, also applies to recipients of federal funds, and the court since Bakke has interpreted Title VI to prohibit race discrimination by recipients of federal funds to the same extent as the Equal Protection Clause prohibits of public universities. So uh, the reasoning goes, if the Supreme Court decides that the Equal Protection Clause should be interpreted to mandate colorblindness, then that would mean Title VI mandates colorblindness, and so that's why it applies to Harvard. So they make four points about why Harvard is violating Grutter. The first is similar to the UNC case, in that they say there are race-neutral alternatives, um, and they have various experts who propose different ways of looking at you know, socioeconomic status, et cetera. Some other parts of the race-neutral alternatives that they focused on in the Harvard case uh, was that preferences are given to, I believe they call them ALDCs, uh, athletes, uh, legacies, meaning children of alumni. D is either donors or deans list, but it's sort of children of people who the university wants to please, and then um, faculty children. Uh, and all of them get preferences, and that group, they argue, is overwhelmingly white. Even, even the athletes are 75% white, a lot of fencing and sailing and squash. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and so they said, you know, and, and, and if, you, if you drop those preferences, then you would have substantially more uh, racial diversity 
um, including Asian diversity uh, and, um, and also black and brown diversity without using race. And I should have said that the Students for Fair Admissions uh, are an organization created for these lawsuits, but they, they represent um, Asian applicants or applicants of Asian descent, meaning Asian in a racial sense, not um, national, nationality sense. Uh, so they're claiming that both these schools' policies uh, are discriminatory towards, towards Asians. So, so the first part is that there are race-neutral alternatives. The second claim they make is that you're, you're giving too much weight to race. Uh, so it's, it's violating the, the Gruder-Fisher-Bakke principle that it should just be one you know, of many factors. Uh, it's, it's too dominant a factor. Uh, a third, somewhat related, is that you're essentially pursuing a quota, that uh, over time the percentages of the different racial groups is too similar to be a coincidence or a result of a truly individualized, holistic review of the applications. So you must be aiming for a particular share of each racial group each year, which would also violate uh, Grutter. And then the final uh, claim, and the one that I think is most controversial, uh, understandably, is that Harvard is um, penalizing Asian applicants uh, through personality scores. So one of the one of the measures that goes into you know the, the total uh, score is a personality score uh, that looks at things like are you confident, are you likable, are you a leader, do you have good character, uh, are you outgoing, uh, things like that. And there was, they presented evidence that suggested that uh, Asian applicants are systematically uh, given lower scores for those kinds of ratings based on kind of stereotypes about uh, Asian personalities. Uh, and that also is inconsistent with Grutter. In fact, that's not really even affirmative action. That's just flat out discrimination. Uh, so it's, um, but if, if, if they could prove that, that's also under existing law uh, illegal. So um, both cases went to trial. Um, at the, the Harvard case, the trial court you know, held a lot of findings, statisticians on both sides, and ended up concluding that the evidence didn't um, prevail on any of the, uh, any of the claims. So they, that, that the admissions policy is compliant with Grutter, uh, and uh, there wasn't sufficient evidence that Asians are being penalized in the Harvard case and that in the UNC case, uh, sort of like with the Michigan case that uh, Ballinger described, they were routinely reviewing race-neutral alternatives. They were, um, uh, they had tried financial aid, they continue to, they tried SES, but that it, it, just, it just wouldn't work. So, uh, and, then, um, and then similarly in the UNC case, that, yeah, they, they, the trial courts won, uh, in, ruled in favor of both schools in both cases. It went up to the circuit court in the Harvard case. They upheld the district court. Uh, in the UNC case, the plaintiffs appealed directly to the Supreme Court, um, which happened in the college case, actually, Gratz as well. And so the Supreme Court just took it without it actually being decided at the Court of Appeals. So those are the two cases before the Supreme Court, uh, whether each school is complying with Grutter, and then alternatively, whether Grutter should be overruled and race should be banned completely. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Um, so now we're going to move on to the uh, the second portion of this, which is kind of figuring out or speaking about the implications of these eventual rulings on um, the affirmative action cases. Um, 
And I want to start off with a question which I'm sure is on everybody's mind, which is, um, what do you think the court will do in these affirmative action cases and where, where will that leave diversity or the use of race in admissions? So I think it's quite possible and many would say likely that the court may overturn the Grutter decision. Um, the justices, you know, we, we're all aware that the court currently leans to the right and um, for quite some time um, there have been major concerns about uh, the use of race and the consideration of race and the impact that that has. So for example, if you look back at the Parents Involved case, Chief Justice Roberts says the way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. You know, while that sounds straightforward, the challenge is, of course, that when you don't take efforts to dismantle our nation's history of discrimination, you actually simply reinforce discrimination. Um, so, but it's clear that um, several of the many of the justices, a majority, um, do not favor the use of race. So they either will overturn the Grutter decision, or they'll just strike a blow to it that is so difficult to comply that it essentially overturns the, the so it's sort of death by a thousand cuts. So that's possible. What will that mean for institutions? So I think there is a key um, thing that came up in the oral arguments that will actually enable universities to consider some diversity. I think that the box that people have to check will go away. In other words, you will not have a place on your application to higher education where it says your race is X. However, plaintiff's counsel conceded that you could, however, talk about your experiences as um, an individual growing up in society that has an impact on race. So in other words, if your background um, and your story that you're telling in your personal statement relates to race because that has impacted your experience in society, even the, those suing both universities said that would be permissible. You could not require them to, you know, someone to never talk about their background. And so that would be still something that's permissible for a student to mention, for teacher to mention, for guidance counselors to mention. However, we've already seen that in states where they completely eliminated affirmative action that there is a, has been a significant drop in particularly the number of African-American and, and oftentimes Hispanic students are admitted. And so you definitely could see a significant drop in many other universities, particularly um, depending on what the court says about how it's overturning these decisions and what is and is not permissible. I, I agree entirely with what Professor Robinson uh, just said. I, I would just uh, emphasize that there was a lot of discussion at oral argument of the question, what can universities do if we overrule these precedents allowing explicit consideration of race? And there were surprising concessions by the lawyers uh, attacking the affirmative action plan that they could take account of these experiences. Okay. I, let me just you know, toss in that race-conscious consideration of diversity of experience is what the University of Michigan thought it was doing in Grutter, you know, 25 years ago. And 
you know, for that reason, we actually, in, in the Gruder case, we thought about arguing that holistic admissions aren't a racial classification and shouldn't be subject to strict scrutiny at all. But instead, we're, we're more like the redistricting cases, where the court has held that, in cases like Shaw versus Reno, that lines drawn on a map don't classify anybody by race. They classify geographies as on one side of a line or not, right? And the outcome of admissions processes classify people as admitted or not admitted, uh, you know, nothing you know, more beyond that. And what the court has said in those redistricting cases is strict scrutiny is triggered only if the outcomes are inexplicable on grounds other than race. I wonder whether actually the court's sort of dawning realization that con race conscious consideration of experiential diversity as it bears on things like resilience and grit and overcoming disadvantage will ultimately push us toward a legal regime that is much more like the one that the court applies in districting cases and actually less rigorous than the one the court has been applying um, to affirmative action under Bakke all of these years. We'll see. Uh, I'm going to We built this city. Oh, um, <laughs> a, a, a paper I wrote on race-neutral affirmative action 21 years ago when I was concerned that, that I thought Gruder would strike down affirmative action, and I was uh, pleasantly mistaken. But, um, but I said that the next problem will be race-neutral, and people thought I was paranoid, but now, unfortunately, it's, it's getting there. So um, the idea is just implicit in what's already been said is that um, Right now, it's considered suspect to target, as your admittees, un, un, underrepresented racial minorities, even if your goal is to ultimately get at um, different you know, viewpoints or cultural experiences or racial experiences uh, or victims of discrimination, if it's remedial, like in Croson, although it wasn't upheld, uh, maybe you know, grit and resilience, um, whatever. Uh, whatever aspects of educational diversity you think will be gotten by giving a preference to underrepresented racial minorities. And so the problem with, if you move to race neutral means, is if they're being used as a proxy, so if you use SES socioeconomic status or first generation or top 10% of a high school class or some other ge geographical or personal essays, and your goal is, aha, through these, they'll kind of correlate with race. Uh, and, you know, like the top 10% was described, it correlates with segregated schools. And then that'll get us underrepresented minorities, which will in turn get us these. Then uh, there's an argument to be made that that should nonetheless, that should also be subject to strict scrutiny, which is typically going to result in it being invalidated. And it's because of an older line of cases that dealt with segregation. So, you know, one example is the University of Mississippi raised its ACT score uh, in order to screen out black applicants, and the court said no. Uh, or uh, Gamillion versus Lightfoot, a city redraw its boundaries. So it's using race-neutral means. Washington versus Davis is a case where uh, 
the court sort of assumed that if you could show a police test exam was designed to screen out black applicants, then it would be subject to strict scrutiny. But in the case, the court said you, you had to prove that and you didn't. But um, so if the court's really going to treat discrimination in favor of minorities to the same degree as discrimination against minorities, then you get, uh, you get the same kind of argument. So I think what was going on in the oral arguments is kind of realizing, well, what if, what if instead we're just trying to ignore their race and just using these essays in socioeconomic status to get at these? And if, if, that's, if the court's convinced that's doable, then it should, um, it should say, okay, well, then you're, you're actually complying because you're not trying to target. In other words, you don't, you don't use socioeconomic status to get black people because you think they have diverse views. You use socioeconomic status to get low-income people. Uh, but that's not suspect to get at diverse views. The tricky part is, as was said with the oral argument arguments, is what if, what if what you're using, like say, essays for is cultural experiences? Well, again, a concession at oral argument was that's different. Like they talked about a, maybe a Vietnamese person or West African moving to uh, North Carolina and having an interesting experience growing up in a white neighborhood. And, and they said, well, culture is different from race. And Kagan said something like, well, that's starting to slice the bologna pretty thin. But, uh, but, but it is. And the, the way the court has tended to view it is something counts as race if it's necessarily tied to race. And culture, though highly correlated with race, is learned behavior where the conventional definition of race is biological. Uh, and this could apply, too, to victims of discrimination. You can be a victim of discrimination regardless of your race, even though it correlates with being a person of color. I think the, the real interesting one that was mentioned uh, is racial experiences, because at that point you're saying your racial experience, like someone posted, I forget which professor, what if you just, your essay is just, I experience being black. Uh, will that be viewed as something that's distinct from race or so in, you know, integrally related to one's race that, uh, that that the court won't allow it. I think it might allow it based on the oral arguments, but only if the school would truly value the racial experience of any race. If they think that, oh, you're, it's the race of uh, black, brown, or indigenous people, those are really interesting. But if it's about being an Asian or even a white experience, they don't give that any weight, then they'll say you're really targeting people based on their race, not their racial experience. Can I toss in another observation about sure. that? I mean, as somebody who has litigated these cases against the opponents of affirmative action my whole career, the, the question for me is, where are these guys going to go next, right? Because they always go somewhere next. And it, given what the court has said in, this, um, in the oral arguments, you know, it, it seems clear they're going to allow consideration of experiential diversity. You know, what are Ed Bloom and Students for Fair Admissions going to say in the next case? They're going to say, I'm sure, that consideration of experiential diversity appears to have favored minority candidates over white candidates, you know, in, in the data that we can look at, right? But if, if the university is entitled to care about, you know, grit and resilience and overcoming disadvantage, are these guys basically going to construct statistical models and, and say, well, look, the fact that the white applicants aren't getting as many points for overcoming disadvantage proves that there's some sort of this illicit discrimination going on here, right? That's crazy. Um, but I, I suspect that's where we'll go. Let me just 
add a point. Um, this litigation has been enormously costly. There have been reports in the paper that Harvard has had to expend $40 million defending its affirmative action program. It, it looks like the plaintiffs have spent about uh, $10 million. So, you know, one of the questions on, on my mind is who is going to invest in this litigation with what prospect of success? And where I come from, plaintiffs who are attacking affirmative action plans, especially these that are ostensibly race neutral, are going to have two big hurdles to get over. One is they're going to have to establish that but for race, the university would not have adopted this race neutral alternative. And then secondly, but for my race, I would have been admitted. Those are big hurdles that no individual applicant will attempt to surmount. So it's only very well-funded litigation that could possibly go forward. I, I think we're not going to see many more cases like this. My experience in employment discrimination with statistical models is they're very difficult to construct. They require a huge expenditure of time and money, and they can always be attacked. Um, we're going to start taking questions from the audience if anyone wants to start us off. Okay, Jayla. Thank you. Uh, howdy, Jayla Shiver, 3L. Um, one of the things that was mentioned um, in the litigation at the Supreme Court was that plaintiffs were saying that um, using other metrics that are ostensibly race neutral, such as legacy status of being um, uh, ancestral, an ancestor of an, of an indentured slave, or you know, status as maybe like you are a refugee, are things that would potentially violate um, distinguishments as people who have some kind of historical legacy and therefore probably wouldn't meet the strict scrutiny to be. Um, to, uh, you would, wouldn't meet strict scrutiny and therefore wouldn't be constitutional. So I'm unclear as to how exactly um, some of these ostensibly race-neutral programs that are often promoted don't jive with strict scrutiny, given that, like, ostensibly, for example, someone could be a descendant of a former slave and be identified as white and could bring that up and would probably have a very unique experience of, you know, being someone who is, I don't know, maybe their, their mother was like half black or something like that and their grandparents were, you know, uh, white passing. Probably be, you know, a very interesting experience for that person who is applying to law school or applying to undergraduate school, but yet plaintiffs claim that that would be a system that would be discriminatory, would, would violate the strict scrutiny uh, standard within the 14th Amendment. I think that's a fantastic observation. I, th I thought the same thing. Um, even uh, even Justice Thomas has said that to the extent the Freedmen's Bureau helped uh, former slaves, then that's not race-based. Uh, Edwin Meese's brief to the Supreme Court made that same argument. So how does it become race-based when you're the descendants of slaves any more than if you're the descendant of you know UVA alumni? I mean, it's, it doesn't turn it into racial just because it's also uh, inherited. So I, I was puzzled by that. I mean, the fact that slavery was race-based doesn't make the status of being a slave a racial category. Other questions? 
Okay, great. <laughs> no, it won't. He can't hear. It won't pick that. up. Okay. Hi, my name's Olive. I'm also a 3L. Um, I thought that Justice Jackson had a really interesting standing question during, I think it was the UNC case, saying, you know, if nobody is being admitted on race alone, you know, it's not like you check a box and bam, you're admitted. What does this do for standing, right? Like, what is, what's the concrete actualized injury here if nobody can explicitly say that race is the reason that I wasn't admitted? Um, I was just wondering if you guys could talk a little bit about that because I found it fascinating. Well, I, I, I think uh, purely as standing doctrine, I think the, uh, the plaintiffs have a pretty good argument for standing based on diminished opportunity. But I, I agree entirely with your point on the merits because existing law, opinions written by Justice Thomas say, the background rule for proving discrimination is you have to show that but for your race, you would have been admitted. So, I mean, they're all over my field of employment discrimination law. And it, what we see here in these affirmative action cases is a strange turning of the tables, which is plaintiffs in employment discrimination law face enormous hurdles to win, procedural, uh, burden of proof. Suddenly, all those issues now have to be faced by reverse discrimination plaintiffs. I'm, I'm not confident that they're going willingly to bring lawsuits when they are up against such um, fairly high hurdles. So, but, you know, what I've been complaining about from the plaintiff side in employment discrimination law now, now I see as a great advantage for universities and colleges in defending reverse discrimination lawsuits. Any more questions? There's a hand over here. Is there? There's a hand? Sorry. Oh, no worries. <laughs> it's okay. Um, oh, great. So, Professor Ballinger, I was wondering a similar thing about what the litigants are going to do next. And you mentioned the idea of treating this like redistricting cases. And I'm curious if there would be a difference in your mind for a public school like UNC and a private school like Harvard where they're pulling kids from all over the country, all over the world, and they're not looking to target a specific state like an in-state school would. I'm curious how you would get around that sort of problem in your proposed solution. Well, you know, I think the, um, if, you, if you looked at it through a redistricting kind of lens, the question would be, are the outcomes of this process inexplicable on grounds other than race, right? Um, and, you know, that, that may be a harder demonstration to make the more diverse your applicant pool becomes, right? Because, you know, the way that you would, you would prove that the outcomes are inexplicable on any other grounds is to do a big regression, I suppose, and try to control for every other factor. And, and the more, you know, the more diverse the pool is, the harder it is that, you know, is going to do. I mean, the other thing that, that national universities, you know, have going for them that's different um, than single state institutions is that you can't do a percentage plan, right? So that, you know, that alternative isn't on the table. Okay. 
Thank you. Hi, I'm Richard Gard. I'm with Virginia Magazine. And uh, I'm curious what you think, what you would predict for the future of legacy admissions under these cases or, or just the way the law is developing with this court? I'll take that one. So, you know, there seems to be significant sort of public op opposition to legacy admissions, but universities are quite committed to um, upholding them in part because these are the alumni that donate to the school. And there is not a constitutional basis to challenge um, legacy admissions. So I do think that legacy admissions are likely to continue. Um, and actually, what's interesting is, um, you know, legacy admissions for, for a very long time have been criticized because they reduce diversity. Um, they, given our history of exclusion in higher education and K-12 education, they overwhelmingly, for most schools, favor um, white students. So it's, it's ironic that schools that are seeking to increase diversity still hang on to that, but the reason, of course, is the fiscal bottom line. They're seeking to support those who are supporting them. And so I don't think that they're likely to be um, abandoned by institutions, whatever the court says, I don't think they're likely to be, um, you know, gotten rid of. I have a quick follow-up to that question, actually. I don't know if you had a chance to uh, listen to the oral argument and the hypothetical that Justice Jackson posed, where she speaks about Right. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So she kind of she speaks about how if um, if legacy applicants can talk about their family history in their application in order, you know, in order to um, kind of tell about their personal story. But let's say a black applicant who's also, who also wants to speak about their family history, but their family history is so bound up in race that they might not be able to under the uh, potentially new race neutral regime. Could that pose an equal protection uh, violation? Yeah, so I love this question. I'm partly in very partial to Justice Jackson. She was my law school roommate, so <laughs> I'm a big, big fan of hers. Um, but brilliant question about, you know, basically sort of she, what she was getting at was, is this court going to try to engage in what would be erasure? In other words, you can't ever talk about, it's almost like you can't ever, you know, don't say race, right? Um, and what she was identifying was this could be an equal protection problem if the only people that can't talk about race are racial minorities. And so she was sort of flagging an issue um, that you know, could be raised in the future if the court really goes so far as to say, not only are we going to um, stop the checking of the box, but you just can't ever mention race. She was flagging that this could also be an equal protection problem, and I think that's very possible. Because then what you have is only some people can talk about their full experiences and others can't. And because race is so tied up in our reality and our nation, you know, you would greatly disadvantage um, many people of color from expressing sort of their background, their experience, what life, what life experiences have meant for them when they're applying for college. And so I don't think, I, I feel like she was giving sort of a cautionary flag to the other justices, yeah. particularly because it was critical during the UNC case because she's not allowed to um, 
you know, ask questions or participate in the Harvard case. So I thought that was a brilliant insertion into the, to the argument. Great. I had a, a point about legacies, uh, which also allows me to suggest another way the court could you know, just limit the use of race even more rather than banning it completely, as uh, Professor Robinson had mentioned earlier. Uh, one thing that came up in the discussion at oral argument was um, within Gruder, the framework where you have to, uh, you know, seriously consider race-neutral alternatives, in one form of race-neutral alternative would be to stop using legacies and stop using some of the other, you know, donor kids and faculty kids. Uh, and I think one of the justices was saying, you know, is it a compelling interest to have a great squash team, you know, if you just drop those scholarships? Uh, and so I think until now, and uh, uh, it, it seems like the court would more kind of take the status quo of the school and say, well, is there kind of a race-neutral add-on you could do that would work better? But they're almost saying you could, they seem to be thinking, well, one way to consider race-neutral alternatives is what could you abandon in your current admissions practice? Um, and that would make it just that much harder to comply because you would not only have to say we've tried financial aid, we've tried socioeconomic status, but we've we've also gotten rid of policies. We have early admission is another one that tends to have a, a white favorable skew. You have to get rid of all these policies that may have legitimate reasons behind them but tend to skew white. Um, so, um, but another point about legacies is how the court rules could depend on whether schools face at least some sort of legal pressure to get rid of legacies. So if the court rules kind of to maintain Gruder, but in this kind of even stricter sense where you got to consider abandoning various other admissions practices, that could put at least some pressure on schools. I agree that they, they would resist it somewhat, but, but they really would say, look, if we want to have a diverse school, maybe we got to re at least reduce how much we have in legacies so we can say we're, we considered race-neutral alternatives. But if the court goes further and says you can't use race at all, period, then that actually takes away the pressure to, to let go of uh, legacy, at least the legal pressure, because now there's no form of narrow tailoring that would satisfy the court. You just can't consider race at all. They still might want to get rid of legacies to get diversity as a sort of voluntary policy, but, um, but a colorblind mandate would mean there's no tailoring to be had, so no pressure to get rid of legacies, whereas a kind of keeping within the Gruder framework could actually impact other things that have a racially disparate impact because it has to be considered as part of tailoring. One thing we haven't talked about, I just want to flag, is that universities do have a First Amendment interest sort of in establishing their particular aims and goals, which um, diversity for many of them is among them. And so it's important to understand that I do believe that the court will, I think the court is not going to focus so much on um, trying to change what the universities are pursuing. So in other words, change and stop them from pursuing diversity. It's really so much how they can go about doing it. Um, but the court will be mindful that institutions do have their own First Amendment interests in constituting their student bodies and having, you know, pursuing particular objectives. And so they will be mindful of that and not sort of basically, you know, in the K-12 context, they're always saying, we don't want to become sort of a super federal schoolhouse. In the same way, they don't want to take over universities and tell them how to run. And I think, you know, requiring them to get rid of things like legacies and athletes and other things would be a total takeover of um, 
universities by the Supreme Court that I do not think that they are willing to do that. I don't think they're willing to go that far. So. I, I, I agree, but they are not willing to go that far in these cases. Um, and I think we won't really know until there is subsequent litigation. Um, you know, the extent to which racially motivated, race-neutral criteria can be used by admissions officers. So I think there's going to be a lot of uncertainty even in June when these decisions come down. I saw a couple hands over there. You know what, you know I got my hand up. Um, thank you so much. I wanted to uh, ask you a question, uh, Professor, because earlier you had mentioned this tension between schools' desire to maintain their elite status, elite status, um, and diversity. And I guess my question, one question is, can you sort of illuminate that tension a little bit more? And secondly, if a school, suppose like UVA, were to decide, like, you know, we're actually going to stop caring about our ranking on U.S. News. We know we're eighth. We can't get past Penn, so we're just going to stop caring. <laughs> uh, would that would that um, would that increase would that would that work in increasing racial diversity, or would that just sort of usher in more, say, low-income white folks or something? Yeah, I mean, so the um, the argument that the plaintiffs made in the Harvard case was, you know, look, Harvard can fix this problem if they just decide to be dark. Uh, they literally said that. You know, <laughs> if you're willing to accept having 98th percentile SAT scores rather than 99th percentile uh, SAT scores, everything will be fine. And Dartmouth is a great you know, school, and so you know, why don't you do that? Um, you know, I, I, I haven't dug deeply into their statistics. I, I, can, I can tell you, you know, what we found um, in Bruder was that it, that's not, you know, th there's no easy um, fix that you can do at that sort of a level because there's so many more poor white and Asian students in the, in the score ranges that are relevant to highly selective universities. That if you were gonna do something like lottery admissions above you know, a particular threshold, say, you, you, in order to achieve racial diversity, you would have to set that threshold much, much further down the scale than you are now. Because if you just move it a little bit, you're, you're sure you're picking up more underrepresented minority students, but you're also picking up a huge number of um, of white and Asian students. And, you know, I, I don't think that the, the district court in, in, you know, the Harvard case didn't find the plaintiffs, you know, proposal D, right? The, like, you know, they, they had this thing um, where, look, if you just tweak this and you tweak that, you know, everything will be fine. If you push, you know, too hard on it, you, you discover that they're making really unrealistic assumptions. So, for example, in the, in the North Carolina case, the, the proposal that the plaintiffs had that we can just easily fix this, assumed that the, the top 750 underrepresented minority students in the state of North Carolina would all go to the, to the University of North Carolina if the, if the University of North Carolina made a sufficient effort to recruit them. Yeah, obviously not, right? Um, More questions? Okay. So I had a question about uh, the possibility of a sort of Title VI challenge to uh, ALDC admissions. So if these, the, as the, the proportion of the, the 
American population gets uh, increasingly diverse, but the proportion of students who are uh, white and athletes, legacies, donors, uh, uh, children of donors, and then uh, children of faculty, as that is an, uh, an increasingly white, far wider than the, the, the pool of applicants and also the pool of, of, uh, of the uh, student body more broadly. Uh, would it be possible to challenge ALDC admissions on the basis that this is a this is a an attempt to give a leg up to white students uh, and an attempt to uh, erode the the base of uh, non-white students in universities? You, you could try, but you wouldn't <laughs> win. Um, I, under Title VI, you have to get the trial court to find intentional discrimination on the basis of race. Um, you can't show a significant disproportionate adverse impact on the basis of race. Um, that's not sufficient under Title VI all by itself. Um, and, you know, these um, uh, claims of proof of intentional discrimination by use of statistical disparities only work when you have what the Supreme Court has called the inexorable zero. No one from a particular racial group can get admitted or get the job. So I, I think it, it, people might try that, but it's a real long shot. Any more questions? Oh, great. Um, hey, thank you guys so much for, for this presentation. Um, so I think I had a question about like the Davis v. Washington uh, possibility of something that is facially neutral but can be deemed to be intentional. And I guess, well, like the, the possibility of that happening, let's say we could find um, kind of a, a race-neutral way that um, like grit and resilience can be measured if you're from like an underperforming school. Um, we don't we we'll take that as a higher measure in your application process or finding some like ri like racially neutral ways of targeting folks that otherwise wouldn't be included. Well, I guess I'm kind of like I, I think my my greater question is like what types of racially neutral avenues might be challenged in the future um, and like kind of getting a little bit more clarity on whether those would be challenged at all. Uh, well, I'll just give, kind of compare two examples, Texas and Florida. So when Texas adopted the top 10% plan, uh, it was pretty clear from the legislative history that they were doing it to get racial diversity. So. To challenge it, uh, you know, under Washington versus Davis, you would have to uh, prove that the school adopted the race-neutral policy because of, not in spite of, its racial impact. That race was a but-for cause in the adoption of the policy. And I think in the Texas case, that's pretty clear. I don't think they would have adopted it for other reasons uh, without race being one of them. Uh, but when California adopted, uh, I think it's a top 4%, uh, I believe the, at least the, the legislative record doesn't 
talk about race. Um, I haven't looked into it real carefully, but to the extent I did it, they, it was a few years later and they might have recognized that that's risky. Um, or they might have just genuinely said, we, we really want geographical, economic diversity, et cetera. But it sort of serves a similar function. It still has somewhat of a racial, racial impact in favor of racial minorities. So the way the litigation goes down, as Professor Rutherland was suggesting, it's, it starts facing the same challenges that people have faced on behalf of minorities since Washington versus Davis and uh, other policies that say you have to prove it was intentional and if it's race neutral and you don't have direct evidence of um, discriminatory intent, it's not the inexorable zero, you don't have anecdotal evidence of smoking gun evidence, sorry, you just haven't proven it. So it'll be very fact-based, but it'll really go to whether you can prove that um, but for the racial impact of the race neutral policy, they would not have adopted it. But th there's a case right now working its way up about Thomas Jefferson High School in, in Fairfax that abandoned its admissions test you know, uh, last year, and a federal district judge has indicated you know, belief that, that it was racially motivated reasons why they abandoned that test. And so, Can you tell more about that case? That's really I, no, you, go ahead. I, I haven't followed it since the, that original decision. Okay, yeah, just a bit more facts. This, this prestigious high school, I think they had like a rigorous test to get in, and it, 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 the, the largest percentage of people who were admitted, it is in Northern Virginia, were Asians and then, and then whites, and then uh, I think Latinos and then blacks were, were like close to, I think blacks were single digits, Asians might have been like close to that. And for years they really wanted to increase the number of uh, black and brown students. So they decided to abandon the test. It was controversial. But then they adopted um, different application criteria, like are you f from a, a district that we haven't generally had represented here before? Uh, are you first generation to, I'm not sure this is a high school, how that works, but um, are you I'm just re recalling the, the news article on it. Uh, are you from English as a second language? Are you from uh, kind of lower, I don't know what the income cutoff was. So it was very much a resort to race neutral policies, some of the ones that anti-affirmative action people are proposing at this point. We'll see if they don't then challenge after it gets to there. But, um, but then parents complained and a trial court ruled in favor that they said that uh, you adopted this in order to reduce the number of Asian students. Uh, because after this policy change where they went to these race-neutral, kind of economically correlated uh, criteria, uh, the number of Asian students went from like 70% to like 55%. Whites stayed roughly the same, and I think black and brown students came up into kind of the mid-teens. And, and so they said it was, the trial court said it's discrimination against Asians, notwithstanding race-neutral uh, criteria, and uh, the Fourth Circuit I think reversed the temporary injunction, but I think it, it hasn't been ruled on beyond that. Thank you. Yes. Um, so hi, I'm Rithika. I'm a first year undergrad at the university, and I had a question stemming on specifically like the lawsuits that you had talked about. And so I know a lot of the schools that you mentioned included like UNC, UMish, um, Harvard, but I feel like for a lot of them, like you see like a great difference between public versus private. So how do you think like the effectivity of these lawsuits are going to differ based on the public versus private status of these schools? 
I, you know, I, I, I believe that the dimension on which most of the litigation is going to turn is how selective the school is. Um, and a lot of these cases have been brought only against highly selective schools which, who turn down most of their applicants. So um, if you, you know, consider a defendant who um, has, for financial reasons, has to accept most of its applicant, I think you're going, I don't think that's going to be a promising site for litigation by plaintiffs attacking affirmative action. Thank you. Any more questions? So the Solicitor General's office spent a lot of time um, talking about the effect on ROTC programs in the um, military academies. And I was just curious if you all had thoughts on if that's going to be effective and swaying any of the judges. And if not, was, was there another purpose? Was it just to give the SG's office an opportunity for oral arguments? <laughs> um, just curious what those thoughts were. I, I have a thought about that. I mean, the, the most powerful anarchist brief that was submitted in the Gruder case was submitted by a group of retired military leaders who basically explained that, um, that the army broke in the Vietnam War because of the you know, enormous racial gap and resentment between the officer corps and the enlisted ranks. Um, and that basically, the, it's not possible to have the army as an effective fighting force unless they can diversify the officer corps. And in order to do that, they have to have affirmative action at the service academies, um, and not just at the service academies, at the universities that have ROTC programs um, that feed uh, into uh, the officers. So this is, this is actually, I think, a real issue. It's, the SG's office isn't making it up. The military believes very, very strongly um, that, I, I mean, a lot of people don't know this, but there, there's significant evidence that a majority of American officers who were killed in the Vietnam War were killed by their own men. There is huge national interest in the effectiveness of the army um, at stake. I think one of the things actually that could come of that is that there could be a separate lawsuit specifically about the service academies. In other words, they may be able to show some kind of compelling national security interest that other, maybe a state school may not be able to show. So I think, you know, it was interesting the the attorney who was, I think she was a general or a major, was, was speaking about um, in favor of what the University of North Carolina and Harvard were doing, but also sort of trying to preserve her argument for <laughs> the service academies at a later point. In other words, even if they go down, we may not go down, right? Um, she was sort of dancing <laughs> to say both, but partly because of what Professor Ballinger said, which is that they draw the officer corps not just from the service academies, right? They have to rely upon universities as well. And so if you eliminate affirmative action from the universities, then you cripple their ability to accomplish this. And so part of what it seemed to me that they were trying to do in the oral argument was to establish the broad impact that the court's ruling could have. This is not just about who gets into elite schools. I think sometimes the cases are disparaged in a way that says this is just about whether you go to Harvard or Dartmouth, which there was a lot of chuckling about, you know, sort of, some people really appreciate Dartmouth, right? Dartmouth, of course, is a great school. That's not the question. The question is whether the path of leadership is visibly open to all, um, all racial groups. And 
if we have the precipitous drop that we've seen in states that ban affirmative action across our nation, then we will be facing a situation where the path of leadership is not open. And we will, as a nation, we will be hurt by that. It will hurt our um, economic um, interests. It will hurt our interest in a safer nation. There's just a broad array of things that will be hurt if we do not um, have a diverse leadership that then leads to the results that um, we need for our nation. So. I had a quick question, actually, about um, let's say the uh, these cases are uh, these cases overrule uh, Gruder, and I know the media explanation is that the court you know the court has changed since then. It's more you know it's more conservative, but um, while maintaining that, do you all think that there is an explanation, there could be an explanation for that that's also more internal to the law that we can track, say, through like an evolution of the doctrine as opposed to just this externalist argument. I don't know if that makes sense. I mean, the doctrine has very much been leaning toward colorblindness for quite some time. And so it would be entirely consistent with that um, line of, you know, the lines in the cases that are just very focused on having a colorblind constitution. Um, which they all claim to trace back to Brown. The challenge is, if you look at Brown, though, Brown was about saying that separate is inherently unequal because they were denying admission to public schools for, for black students, not because it, it was less about race itself, more about the actual impact of that denial. And he, But that's been built upon to say we should just stop thinking and looking and um, it's considering race. Um, but the you know, the line of cases that gets you to colorblind is very clear. And so I think they would have a lot of, I know they would have a lot of precedent to build upon to get to that result. It wouldn't be a, oh, we made a dramatic turn here. It's that we've been building toward this for quite some time. I asked that because I would assume that, you know, part of the media rhetoric is going to be like, okay, the, the court has changed. And now all of a sudden that there's this like drastic change in affirmative action doctrine. So I, I thought it was helpful to hear that. Justice Kavanaugh and, and Justice Barrett, you know, both made a, a big deal at argument, too, about Justice O'Connor's 25-year limit in Grutter and the fact that it is impending. So, you know, you may get at least some opinions in these cases that say, you know what, we're, we don't have to overrule Grutter. Grutter overrules itself. Oh, yes. Tony. Yeah, and I'll just add while you're taking it. It reminds me a bit about the abortion issue because ever since Roe versus Wade, there's been a divided court, and then we finally got a majority that's against abortion. And that similarly, there's always been justices against affirmative action, but now you have a majority. Hi everyone, thank you so much for this excellent panel. Um, I'm Tony, I'm a 1L, and my question goes all the way back to Professor Robinson's statistics in the very beginning. I was struck by just how you know disjunctive they were. And I was wondering if you guys think that affirmative action has a PR problem and if there's any way that that could be solved and if law has anything to do with that. Well, we've had 45 years to solve the PR problem since Regents of the University of California against Bakke. And it, it hasn't been solved. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think one of the... Um, one of the challenges is that people 
in our nation don't really understand that we don't have equal educational opportunities. So this is from my life's work, is it's helping people understand that we have a very broken education system and we need to be adopting laws and policies that fix that. But because we think that we have equal opportunity, of course then we should all be, if we're all starting on this level playing field, then of course admission should be on the same level playing field. But unfortunately that's just not the reality in our nation. And so because we have this myth of the American dream and this myth that we've accomplished as equal opportunity, well then people think it, it sounds very fair. If everything's equal, then let's just keep admissions equal. But unfortunately the foundation is broken and you're putting what you think to be an equal system on top of something that's very broken. And so that is the key problem with the admissions cases. Um, so. Thank you all so much for doing this. This is really, really uh, enlightening. Uh, my question, kind of thinking about sort of um, the court, the last, like the last, obviously last major case um, with Dobbs was sort of this big case that also had lots of implications on other areas of the law, particularly around privacy. Um, and I'm curious, assuming, um, not knowing yet, obviously, what, how far the court's going to go with this decision, but it's, these decisions on Harvard in Newsy cases, but assuming they overturn Gutter, whatever they end up doing, I guess. Are there any sort of ripple effects in other areas of the law or connected areas of the law that you all foresee to sort of be on the lookout or maybe some, or some arguments or that um, if other people see the plaintiffs making and seeing it being successful, that they could apply to other areas? Just kind of thinking more broadly about the consequences um, of this decision. Well, if they hold affirmative action in higher education unconstitutional, They'll hold affirmative action in employment in violation of Title VII. It's crystal clear. Um, Professor Robinson, let me know. Um, any more questions? Oh, Jayla. Why don't we make this the last one? Just a brief question. Um, how do you think that this decision will potentially impact recruitment to universities? Because I know, you know one of the things I was mentioned in the Fisher case was UT's Longhorn long Neighborhood Program, which helps recruit you know underrepresented minorities to the school, but not to necessarily admit them. Will that still be implicated in this decision to say, you know, you're reaching out to you know X minority group, which is giving them a bump in the potential to be admitted to the university? It's a great question. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, go uh, um, I was thinking of Justice Stevens' decision in Baki. So first of all, you're right. The logic could say that recruiting is itself a government benefit, uh, especially if it comes with any kind of benefits, bringing people to campus, maybe giving them scholarship money. Um, but even just reaching out, you could say, well, that's still government action motivated by race. Uh, I think intuitively, people don't have that I have much less of a hard time with recruiting, even Justice Stevens' decision in Baki that said you can't take race into account at all under Title VI drops this footnote that said, of course, recruiting is different, although, you know, that's a footnote 45 years ago. But um, so, but, you know, and then you'd have to, the standing issue, right? Uh, if, you had, if you had recruited me, I would have come, but you, know, you didn't, so I felt miffed. But, um, but yeah, especially depending on if it has actual tangible benefits to you other than being kind of courted, uh, people could challenge that. Non-applicants do very badly in employment discrimination cases. 
All right, I believe that will be our last question. Thank you so much, everybody, for coming. And thank you to the panelists for all their time and their knowledge. We really appreciate you all. Thank you, Bertie. Of course. You did a great job. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm going to run. Yeah. Thank you. You're so going to have to. Thank run. you, of course. Thank you for this opportunity. See you, Kimberly.